Welcome to the Sideline Podcast. Today is Monday, November 16th, and the Indiana Hoosiers are 4-0 in the Big Ten for the first time since 1987. My name is Justin Berger, and I'm joined by Doug Watley and Alec Kieser. Speaking of 1987, in week five of that season, the Indiana Hoosiers traveled to Columbus and defeated the ninth-ranked Buckeyes. Next week is week five of the Big Ten season, and the Hoosiers match up against the Buckeyes in Columbus. Doug, does history repeat itself? No. I hate to be that guy, and I hate to lead the show like that. Way to put me on the spot there. Uh, But Ohio State, we'll get to that game in a little bit. I like Indiana the way they're playing right now. They just defeated a below-average Michigan State team, but the way that they played was great, 24-0. The Spartans could not get anything going on offense. They tried two QBs. Both of them were below average. And this defense for Indiana, my oh my, zero points allowed. I get the Spartans aren't good on offense, but for them to create turnovers the way they did was very impressive. It's not that the Spartans aren't good on offense. It's just that they're like Rocky Lombardi is extremely inconsistent. Like if you, if you go back to the Rutgers game, he threw a bunch of interceptions. They fumbled a bunch of times. Um, then he looked fantastic against Michigan. Um, against Indiana, he had the turnover bug again, and they made him pay. The defense looked incredible. The D-line especially. Um, we were getting pressure on the quarterback like I've never seen this get. Um, and it wasn't coming from blitzes and having to manufacture pressure. It was coming from three- and four-man rushes. And so that was really impressive to see. Well, Let's talk about that defense, a absolute clinic. I think anytime you give up zero points is a is a clinic session. Three interceptions, three fumbles, only one loss from Michigan State. So four turtle four total turnovers, excuse me, and four sacks, two of them coming from Micah McFadden. I believe the other two coming from Jerome Johnson. Yep. So a very good day on the defensive side. Uh, again, along the lines of what we've talked about the entire season and the preseason, we knew how good this defense was. It's just what Michael Penix was going to show up. And Michael Penix, although shaky throwing two interceptions, still threw for over 300 yards and had himself a good day. I mean, if there's one takeaway you can have from, from this game, that's I mean, you can have a bunch of negative takeaways from any game, but the offense kind of sputtered in the second half. Uh, but like you said, Penix threw two interceptions. Um, he was good, not great. Freifogel was incredible. Yeah, um, Big Ten Player of the Week. Yeah. Uh, you can't say enough about Ty Freifogel. And the, I mean, the, the touchdown he scored spinning off the defenders and, and just running to the house was very, very impressive. It's He's 6'2", but it's his combination of quickness and route running. He gets himself open, and even if he's covered, the way I remember it was a right side of the field comeback play where Penix threw it behind him. I thought it was going to go way behind him, and it was out of bounds, but he turned at the right moment, caught the ball, and that was a big first down for the Hoosiers. So, that combination, he's leading the Big Ten in reception yards right now. Penix, by the way, leading the Big Ten in passing yards. So that combination, I mean, Wap, Wap Fillier has been great all season. Didn't get targeted as much this game, but Freifogel got it done. Listen, well, when you're, we're talking about saying that the quarterback uh, of IU played good, not great, and we smoked Michigan State by 24. Like, That's what I was going to say. I was like, yeah. the, the, the narrative of this game was that IU left a lot of points on the board and in my opinion, didn't play that sound of a game and still walked out of out of East Lansing with a twenty-four to nothing win. Time of possession again, very similar to the Michigan game. It was if you round up, it was 39-21 difference in time of possession with Indiana taking the ball for more time again. And we've seen that trend in every game except for the Penn State. Uh, game this year and then that leads us with the most important game maybe in Indiana football history if you if you exclude the Rose Bowl in 1967 next week at Columbus number nine versus number three if you look at the AP poll does they I believe depending on what site you look at 
Indiana opened at a, around a 20-point dog. Right. Um, does this team have a chance? Because I know what we, we're drinking the Kool-Aid in Bloomington, absolutely. Um, the defense certainly has flashed their ability, but this Ohio State offense with Justin Fields is a completely different animal. With all due respect to every team in the NS played this year, they're completely different. Yeah, Ohio State's been a step of ahead of the Big Ten in past years. They are again this year. But for both of these teams, really, they haven't played the best competition in the Big Ten. You see Michigan's drop down. You saw Penn State drop down. The same thing has happened for Ohio State's opponents. So this is really going to be a big test for both teams. 20 points, I'll tell you, that's a lot of points to bet against the number nine team. But at the same time, for me, the key of the game is going to be the offensive line for the Hoosiers against the defensive line in Ohio State. We talked about it with the Michigan game specifically, is they can out-recruit you, but will it matter? Will the coaching elevate the offensive line enough for the Hoosiers? It has in the past. I think it will enough for this coming Saturday, but, I mean, offense for Ohio State is just monumental. Yeah, I mean, if you the, the dangers, I guess you want to say, for the Hoosiers going to the game this Saturday, which um, Justin and I will be in Columbus for, so hopefully we bring some – you know some momentum with us, but like uh, if you if you watch the end of the Penn State game or as the Penn State game was winding down and the pressure that Penn State's ends were able to get on Penix, um, that doesn't bode well for the Hoosiers facing an Ohio State defense that constantly churns out top five draft picks. Um, also, if you look at the way that Indiana's defense has been beat on big plays this year, it's been over the middle when we're playing cover two. I, I can't. I, mean, I don't understand why more teams don't attack us that way. And I would imagine Ohio State's going to try and attack the middle of our defense. So it'll be interesting to see those matchups. But coaching-wise and and big-picture-wise, if you're looking at both of these programs, I think the Hoosiers want to get to where Ohio State is, and this will be a good measuring stick for them. Well, Tom Allen said that his uh, idea of a consistency program-wise when he got to Indiana was that of Michigan State. And to beat Michigan State was certainly big for him. It's a little different now that D'Antoni's gone, but... Certainly, that was a good mark for the Hoosiers. Uh, Ohio State, the defense, or excuse me, the, the matchup we, we have highlighted and I think the, the world is going to highlight is Indiana's defense versus Justin Fields and that Ohio State offense. Not to discount the Ohio State defense, but it's gettable. I mean, 17 points to Nebraska, 25 to Penn State, and 27 to the Shiano man <laughs> in, uh, in Piscataway. So I am encouraged that if Michael Penix can play the way he's played, in the first half of last week and then the Michigan game and the Rutgers game, this Indiana offense will be able to score on this Ohio State defense, I think. The real question is, can IU's defense create enough stops or really, you know, bend, don't break, create enough field goals or instead of touchdowns in this Ohio State offense to keep them in this game for the long term? Because in Ohio State's three games this year, each team has been in it in the first quarter and then even a little bit into the uh, second quarter, but Ohio State's offense just became too much and their defense did enough to put them to bed. So that's what that's what I'll be looking at is, is this Hoosiers team going to compete past the third or fourth quarter? I think we have the ability to be competitive, but it's going to take, like, like we were talking about, Penix played, played well but not great against Michigan State. If he plays like that against Ohio State, then the Hoosiers probably don't have a chance. I mean, he's going to, like, Ohio State's a different animal. They're they're a legitimate factory that gets mentioned with Bama and Clemson and you know all the any powerhouse football school you want to mention. So, um, yeah, they're they're going to need to obviously play their best game, but at the same time, 
Very, it, it, like it's not this game isn't unwinnable for this Hoosiers team. They, ha- they have oh, the ability and the talent to win this game. They were supposed to lose two games earlier this season, and they won both of them one comfortably, one not so much. And all it takes is one great play to really put you over the top. I have a question though. So, we talked about how IU's been winning the time of possession game after game. They are only one of three teams in the Big Ten, along with Michigan State and Purdue, that are not averaging 100 rushing yards per game. Is that problematic at all? I, I'll i go first. Um, Stevie, I believe, carried the ball 24 times this uh, weekend against Michigan State. And I know I used uh, rushing attack with Sampson James and Penix combined for a shade over 100 yards, like 115-ish. Yeah, 113. Um, so... I've been saying this the the deal for the Hoosiers this whole year is get Stevie and Sampson carries and good things will happen. They are not averaging as much yard as many yards as I thought they would, but Stevie ha- and Sampson for that matter have been very important inside of the red zone and they've been very effective at pushing the ball in inside the five yard line. So well, you're, I already forgot your question. Was it will they be effective or do it, they need to be effective? Yeah, do they need to? Will it be problematic in future games like Ohio State? For the instance? play action that IU's offense likes to run is dependent on IU running the ball. And running the ball uh, uh effective at some point. So can they do it against Ohio State's defensive line? I think they can. Do they have to? Absolutely. I would like to see at least 20 to 30 carries between Stevie and Sampson, which is what we've gotten in every game. So I don't see that changing. Yeah, I honestly don't think the running game's an issue. I don't think yards is the best way to measure it either because we played Penn State week one. We got crushed in time of possession. Um, week two, we played uh, a Rutgers team. That game, we probably should have ran the ball a little more. But then we played Michigan, who's terrible against the pass, and we utilized that all game. And Michigan State, who's also not great at defending the pass. And so, I mean, the the most encouraging thing for me is at the end of the Michigan game, we were able to line up for five minutes and run the ball down their throats. And so if if IU has the ability to do that, then I've, I'm confident they can run the ball against pretty much anybody. I would agree. All right, let's talk about that Michigan team. 49-11 loss to Wisconsin at college game day in the big house. Not that home field matters, but it was a home game. Michigan's offense was anemic, and their defense was even worse, allowing 49 points to a team that hasn't played in third three weeks. To be fair, Graham Mertz has been a revelation in Madison, and uh, I think the future is quite bright for that offense, considering that they're going to continue to get high-quality running backs that they've always gotten. But how has Don Brown not been fired from his position as defensive coordinator as at Michigan? The, the, the points they've allowed this year— 20, uh, 24 to Minnesota. Minnesota's terrible, so that's good. 27 to Michigan State, who didn't score this weekend and has at times looked like they belong on a JV football field. 38 to IU and 49 to Wisconsin. I, I'm, to be fair, they, they've played two of the best teams in the Big Ten, but thir- 49 points and primetime at your home stadium? How are you not better than that? It's a tradition of winning football, too, so that's the most frustrating thing I see a lot of Michigan alums both on Twitter and in person, saying this has to change. And I think after seeing what happened against Wisconsin, and we'll talk about Wisconsin, they they played great. So it's not only Michigan stinking, it was also the combination of the Badgers playing well. But after this game, there has to be change. I don't think Harbaugh is going to win big games with this situation going on in Michigan. You talked about Brown. I'm sure he'll be part of that train too, but 
for something something needs to change with Michigan, and it starts with the head coaches. And in one one instance in particular, third quarter, right? They were losing all game. They score a touchdown on offense. On defense, they get a three and out, but then they get a roughing the kicker penalty or running into the kicker punter penalty, and the drive continues. Wisconsin goes on to score. That's coaching. Yeah, I mean, it's not just like it's not just like, like they have the athletes to play. It's and it's not just that they're like making mistakes but they're also it's like it, the penalties are killing them and yeah. so at a certain point it's not the on the athletes on the coach and like Michigan hasn't looked good at all like at all um there's a, a, obviously a big problem we've been talking about it for a couple of weeks and um I, I was was one to give Harbaugh the benefit of the doubt but yes yeah, his uh his margins getting slimmer and slimmer each week and getting the doors blown off of you by Wisconsin definitely doesn't help your case. Well, I have been on the Fire Harbaugh and James Franklin train the whole season. We'll get to James Franklin a little later. But Graham Mertz, I talked about early, I, I, he's only a freshman, and it looks like he is locked in this starter job until he wants to go to the NFL. He only threw for 127 yards and two touchdowns, but that's because the game was out of hand so quick. It was 28 nothing before he even blinked. But Wisconsin did what Wisconsin does, 51 carries for 341 yards for the Badgers this weekend. So Wisconsin's going to do Wisconsin things. No surprise there. What do you see at the fu- for the future for Paul Chris, that offense with Graham Merckx le- leading, the, uh, leading the train for the next two and a half years at least? Well, firstly, for this season specifically, they have to stay healthy. They've only played two games, and both games they've looked fantastic. But you got to rack up some games. This can't really happen again later this season or else you're going to be in trouble. But with that being said, their rushing attack, I was talking to my friend that goes to Wisconsin, their top two running backs were COVID ineligible this week. Their other guy, their freshman, wasn't even good, so they've played someone else. Jalen Berger put up 15 carries, 87 yards, and a touchdown. So the rushing, the running backs aren't really playing, but the offensive line has been the constant for this team in the past three years. So to answer your question, it's got to be dominating the ball, dominating the rushing game with the offensive line. I mean, they send two offensive linemen to the draft every year. So for them to continue doing that, they'll keep their spot at the top of the Big Ten. Yeah, I mean, it's it's between Ohio State, Indiana, and, and Wisconsin for the three best teams in the Big Ten. And I don't know what order you want to put them in. We'll biasly put the Hoosiers up there, but we won't rank them. Um, yeah, this if Graham Mertz is the real deal, and uh, each time we see him play, even though it's only been twice, it seems like he, he is – then you're adding another element to a Wisconsin team that we already know is going to run the ball extremely well and play defense. And so that, I mean, I don't want to like do anything for Wisconsin fans here, but um, that that that's uh, gives you some exciting thoughts in, in uh, Madison. Exciting thoughts are running rampant across the Big Ten. A uh, great year so far for Peyton Ramsey and the Northwestern Wildcats, who – Advanced to 4-0, a win in West Lafayette, 27-20 against Purdue. Purdue was 2-0 coming into that game, a a battle of the, uh, at that point, the two teams at the top of the Big Ten West. Uh, Northwestern is legit. I'll say they're legit. Their defense is very good and very underrated. Peyton Ramsey, if you're a Hoosiers fan, you know exactly what you're going to get from Peyton Ramsey, and that is an elite game manager. Um, and and uh, Northwestern has the rushing attack to get the ball do- or to get the uh, ball moving. So why not this Northwestern team? They've got their biggest game of the season this this coming week against Wisconsin. Most likely will will decide the Big Ten West and who advances to Indianapolis. So keys thoughts on Peyton Ramsey and this Wildcats team. 
feel-good story, man. I mean, obviously, former Hoosier, you want we all want Peyton Ramsey to do well, and the fact that like he is playing so well, and Northwestern's playing so well, very exciting. But like you said, huge test for them this weekend, kind of similar to IU. Um, I believe, I like we all believe, and and obviously. Uh, the AP poll and coaches poll reflect that I use a little bit farther along than Northwestern is, but I mean, yeah, what a like, like, what a fun see! Like, how can you not have fun when Peyton Ramsey's your quarterback? And give respect to Northwestern too. They had a horrible year last year. Sure, don't don't hide that fact. But the years before, Pat Fitzgerald has built a dynasty in yeah. Evanston. This is not really a surprise. Maybe in 2020 with this crazy year, especially the way they played last year with zero offense, they get a capable QB in now. They have a good running game. And you talk about their defense. I mean, their side of the division is not as powerful as Indiana, Ohio State, Michigan usually. So for them to play like this does not surprise me at all. Dynasty is a little bit of a stretch, but I understand. It's been what you a, for I mean, Northwestern, though. I would dynasty is a, a solid program. They have built, built a, a consistent, solid, consistent program, program out of nothing. Uh, and Purdue, by the way, just happens to have two of the best wide receivers in this upcoming class. It's like, yeah, sure. And they were shut <laughs> down. So uh, uh, kudos to Northwestern's defense. Again, next week we'll be talking about the the winner of the Indiana Ohio State game and the winner of the Northwestern Wisconsin game will more than likely be seeing each other in the uh, Big Ten Championship in Indianapolis in a little a little over a month. Uh, and then lastly, I have to mention this because it's pathetic. A 30-23 to 23 loss for Penn State in Lincoln, uh, Nebraska's first one of the season. I guess you can call it a big win. 0-4 uh, for the Nittany Lions. James Franklin still has a job. Sean Clifford was benched. Uh, he was 5-for-8 with 37 yards. He hasn't held on to the ball the entire season. He, uh, he threw another pick before he got out, and he lost a fumble. Uh, it's all bad in Penn State right now. So where do you go if you are in the Nittany Lions athletic office? Let me let me douse the flames in uh in Happy Valley real quick. Clifford went when he's been able to hold on to the ball has been extremely effective orchestrating that Penn State offense. They were an inch away from losing or from from beating Indiana. They happened to play Ohio State second and they caught. Uh, a kind of hot uh, Maryland team, the one this past weekend, um, almost inexcusable. But I, if if they have a quarterback who holds on to the ball, then they're they're probably three and one right now. If you fire James Franklin, though, you're doing it based off four games. Last season they were what nine and two, I think, and they won their bowl game against Memphis. I get the season's a disappointment, but four games, four bad games, is that really enough to fire a good head coach? It's not like Michigan because yeah, it's not like Harbaugh's had it's seemingly opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to kind of get the right system in place, get the right guys in place, find a quarterback, win a big bowl game, beat a big team, and he hasn't. I feel like Penn State under Franklin has had some pretty big victories and and has been able to recruit well and been constantly in the top like five eight or top eight whatever, um and, and be in that national picture and so. Like Doug said, I, if you want to fire James Franklin, you're doing it off of four games. Is it really worth it? Uh, you know where my head's at. I'm actually looking up right now. We're <laughs> going to do a bad podcasting to see how he's done in bowl games as a head coach. Uh, that loss to the Rose Bowl, everyone remembers, against USC with Darnold at quarterback. That was one of the best bowl games I've ever seen. But at Penn State, he is 3-3 three and three in bowl games. 
with wins two and one in uh, New Year's Six Bowls, uh, Cotton Fiesta, both wins, and then a loss in the Rose Bowl, and then a loss in the Citrus Bowl. The other two were his first two years, which we said post uh, post Sandusky scandal, not really counting. But so two and one in New Year's Six Bowls, very good. I would think you would take even at a program like Penn State. Uh, again, though, that's a that's a program that expects to be competing for national championship every year. So an 0-4 start against three programs, uh, you don't include Ohio State, but against Indiana, Maryland, and Nebraska, three programs you would probably consider inferior to yours, is certainly something that you have to take a look in the mirror at. Right? Oh, yeah, it's definitely something to look at. But, I mean, you can also if, – if it starts becoming a trend for, for a James Franklin-led Penn State team, then it becomes a problem. But, I mean – it's, it's a crazy year, man. It's a crazy year. It is a crazy year. We could do the whole cliche, it's 2020, but we're <laughs> not. Uh, let's jump to the ACC. Notre Dame-Boston College, the red bandana game for Boston College. A dominating performance for Notre Dame, 45-31, the final. I, I don't have a lot of things to say about this Notre Dame team that I haven't already said. Uh, they are very talented. Boston College, two of the leading uh, tacklers in all of football. So their defense is good, but 45 points to Notre Dame is is not a good look. Notre Dame ran for just under 300 yards on 50 carries. Ian Book was stellar again, and their defense is just good enough to get it done. This was a personal game for uh, Phil Jerkovich, who's the starting quarterback for Boston College, and Ian Book started over him at uh, Notre Dame, so he transferred to BC. So, I don't know. This is a good road win. Boston College, no no slouches over there. So, uh, another good win for Notre Dame. But like we've talked about, they're just on cruise control till we get to Charlotte in a month. It could have just been a trap game pretty much. You saw the game last week against Clemson. They performed very well there. Then next week they go to Chapel Hill to face not a good, but a potentially great offense. Well, I think North one of Carolina. the best offenses yeah. in the country. So they could have been looking ahead. They just came off a huge one against the number one team in the nation. Bottom line for me is Notre Dame took this game seriously. They're well coached. They play well. And for them to win by 14, I give them a lot of respect. Yeah, I feel like the the ACC is filled with a bunch of teams that are like good at one on one side of the ball and not great in the other. And so, um, yeah, BC's got a pretty good defense, but Notre Dame's just better. I think that's an excellent way to put it. Miami, meanwhile, a road win at Virginia Tech. Uh, and we know how hard Blacksburg can be to play, especially with fans there. But Miami, ninth team in the country last week, 10th now after after uh, barely squeaking by this week. They are 7-1, and one, but have won by the skin of their teeth a few times this season, including a close one with UVA, a close one with NC State, and then one against Pitt without Kenny Pickett. Uh, certainly a 12-point win, but certainly closer than you would want it to be without Pitt's best player. So Miami, where do we stand on them? They're, they're, they could finish the season with only one win, or only, excuse me, only one loss. Uh, rest of their schedule, Georgia Tech, Wake Forest, UNC, all teams that can score except for Georgia Tech. But one loss, Miami could get out of the, uh, or could not be featured in the ACC championship. Where do they go from here? And how good do you think Miami is? Uh, I think they're pretty much they're they're right where they're they're ranked. I think in that like nine to fifteen, sixteen range. I think like you, you wouldn't be surprised if they they got hot and beat a top team in the country. Probably not a top like four team, but if they beat somebody in like the seven to ten range, like 
I don't think anybody would be too surprised, but I don't. I also don't think that, um, like if if Miami's in a New Year's Six ball, I don't think they're favored at all. I I think that it's about fifty fifty chance they are. I mean, if you talk about fraudulent, sure in the big college football top four picture they might be a little fraudulent. They're not as good as those teams, but from where they were last year, they finished the season six and seven. They're improving greatly, and so. I'm sure all Miami Hurricanes fans will take this season as as good it's, as it's been. Yeah, well, no, no. I don't think they're frauds. I think they're right exactly where we have them. Uh, Manny Diaz certainly is a much better candidate to get that to get the U back than Mark Richt was. Um, just a completely different style head coach. Uh, yeah, my, I mean, it's unfortunate. Miami could finish the year 10-1 and one and not make the ACC championship because of Notre Dame finishing undefeated and Clemson winning the head-to-head against Miami. But those are ACC politics, and I don't really need to get into them. Wake Forest, UNC, crazy game, uh, like 109 points. I think it was 50, or 112, 59-53 final. UNC and Sam Howell, are, it's one of my fa- – I love Mac Brown, first of all, and Sam Howell is one of – has become one of my favorite players to watch. Um, and Wake Forest, by the way, no slouches either. They have a very good offense, and especially losing Jamie Newman. So a good game, but a necessary and important win for UNC. But Sam Howell, he's a sophomore, so he plays one more year, and then he can come out of the draft. If you're looking at the draft next year, if you're a Bears fan, uh, how how high do you see Sam Howell being drafted? Where in that list of quarterbacks? And then do the Bears go back to the well and get themselves another Tar Heel? Dude, come on. That's, that's such <laughs> a cheap shot. You're just teasing me. Yeah, oh, tough. my God. Um, well, Howell, realistically, at North Carolina has looked better than Trubisky did at North Carolina. So there's True. that. Um, for me, I think he'll be one of the top – quarterbacks in that class right now he's putting up stats better than any other quarterback if you really want to relate this to the bears i hope the bears go a little bit earlier than next year but i don't know i mean he'll definitely be a top quarterback in that draft and he'll have a good nfl career if he plays like this and you talk about wake forest too they're another good offensive team that put up points they scored 53 points so maybe it's just a north carolina offensive no defensive team i i yeah sam howell put up 550 yards and six touchdowns I think the future is bright for this team. Uh, We'll see how long Mac Brown decides he wants to coach for because he is getting up there in age. But, again, Wake Forest, Dave Clawson, head coach, a lot to look forward to if you're a Demon Deacon. Let's move to the south. SEC football, 60 seconds down south. We've stretched out a little longer. Uh, Arkansas at Florida. A great game if you're a Gator fan. A bad game if you're a Razorback. Kyle Trask has cemented himself as a Heisman contender now, uh, throwing for 356 yards, six touchdowns, and no interceptions. This game was over in the second quarter after the Gators put up 28 points. Uh, Anytime you score 63 points in the SEC is crazy. I've said it all season long. Florida has the only offense in the SEC that can compete with Alabama, um, and that's looking like the most likely scenario for the SEC championship in Atlanta, be Florida and Alabama, a classic SEC clash. But if you're a Gator fan, uh, you got to love what you're seeing from your redshirt senior quarterback in Kyle Trask. I mean, you're our Gator fan. Hi, do you <laughs> yeah. love what you're seeing from your redshirt senior quarterback, Kyle I Trask? We'll tell you it is the best quarterback the Gators have had since Tim Tebow. Um, before that, uh, it, Felipe Franks is now the quarterback for Arkansas, and he was back in the back in the swamp. Uh, he played for Florida for just over two years, and then 
split his ankle in a hundred different directions last year and had to had to miss the rest of the season. But he had a good game as well. But Felipe, up until Kyle Trask, was the best uh, quarterback the Gators had had since Tim Tebow, which was more than ten years. So to have a guy like Trask, who's entered his name into the Heisman candidacy, is very exciting. I, of course, am very excited as a Gator fan. I still root for them, even though I am 100% invested in this Indiana team. Florida's got a real chance to uh, to to beat Alabama, especially if Kyle, especially if Kyle Pitts is healthy, tight end for the Gators, more than likely going to be a top 10 pick in the draft next year. Kyle Trask is shocking the world, and I, I'm not surprised. I love what I'm seeing from the Swamp. USC, Ole Miss, and USC, I do mean South Carolina, folks. Uh, great game if you're a Lane or great game if you're a Lane Kiffin fan. Uh, that play that he drew up, uh, it was a 91-yard touchdown, something like that, and he threw his clipboard 100 feet in the air, running down the sideline. This is exactly what Ole Miss signed up for, um, so I'm sure they were happy with that result. They should beat South Carolina because South Carolina is a dumpster fire. Will Muschamp was relieved of his duties, not fired on Sunday, so. I am interested. Will Muschamp has had an interesting career. He was the coach-in-waiting at Texas under Mack Brown, decided to leave uh, when Urban Meyer left Florida and took the Gators' head coaching job, largely a failure as the coach of the University of Florida, signed on to be Auburn's defensive coordinator for a year under Gus Malzahn, had a great defense that year, and parlayed that into being South Carolina's head coach. For the three years he's been at USC, he's he's had a few big wins, but largely it's that same inconsistencies he's had uh, he had at Florida, he's had at USC. So my question to you, or to both of you, and I, you may not be able to give me a very great answer, but does is a move if you're a guy like Will Muschamp go and be a defensive coordinator because we know how talented he is at coaching the defense. Do you go become a defensive coordinator at a bigger school? Or try and get a uh, a job at a at a school like uh, Central Michigan or Liberty. Western Michigan. Yeah, Liberty. Yeah, like Hugh Freeze. Do you do that, or do you go after the big school with coordinator job? It depends on what he wants to do, honestly. Because if he wants another head coaching job, then he'll be able to find a program that's going to take a shot in a guy who's the head coach of two SEC programs. But if he wants to be in play for another big job sooner, then he should probably take a coordinator job and try and do the same thing he did in between Florida and um, in South Carolina. Um, is he going to get an opportunity like he did with Auburn? I have no idea. But, I mean, if that's if he wants to continue to coach big programs, I feel like that would be the fastest way to do it. I would agree. Uh, I, yeah, exactly what you said. Now, from South Carolina's perspective, though, where do they go from here? South Carolina before it, it was interesting in the in the late '90s and the early 2000s they had a great run of formerly good head coaches, but hiring Lou Holtz and Steve Spurrier back to back. So I don't South Carolina historically has not been a been a great program for for football. Um, only recently, when Spurrier was the head coach, were they were they very good at the top of uh, the SEC. I don't know what they do from here because. They play in the SEC East, and the SEC East has always been, at least in the last 30 years, it's always or 20 years, it's been Georgia and Florida, and then for all time, Tennessee, you throw in the mix as well. South Carolina's never been a factor in that, so uh, we'll see where they go. Obviously, it's an SEC job, and it's a, it's a big brand, big brand for Under Armour as well. So some guy is going to get that job. Mike Bobo has been elevated to the uh, – 
interim coach, and he was longtime offensive coordinator under Mark Richt at Georgia, has a relationship with Muschamp. He took a job at Colorado State and didn't do well as a head coach, so he came back to the SEC to be a coordinator. We'll see how he does. It could be him. I don't know where they go. Jim McElwain's a guy who was a head coach for a while at Florida. Maybe he gets that job. They go after another former Florida head coach. I don't know. I don't want to speculate. We'll see what happens in the offseason. Quickly, Pac-12, Oregon and USC 2-0. Every other team does not matter. What does matter is the Pac-12 has to have an undefeated six-win team to even have a chance to get in the playoff, and that's where we're at right now. Also happening this week in college football, the fake spike at Western Michigan. Let me get your guys' take on that. What did we think about the fake spike play to win the game with less than a minute left? It was wide open. It was it the was. smartest play. I mean, yeah, you talked about one minute left. There was a up, it was a back-and-forth game. Western Michigan quarterback saw the guy on the left wide open, fake spike, then it literally had the whole field in front of him. Good play. Cincinnati. Maction, by the way. That's Ma- all. Uh, yeah. Maction. No, we got Maction tomorrow night. We got Maction on Wednesday night. It's great. Cincinnati 55-17 throttling against Eastern Carolina. Cincinnati's really, really good. If you haven't watched them, I really would encourage you to uh, take a couple hours to to watch some of their games. Again, they're going to cakewalk into the Atlanta Coastal, or excuse me, the uh, American Athletic Conference Championship, more than likely against SMU. However, the big thing from this weekend, again, you one of you brought it up earlier, only ranked team to lose this weekend was SMU, and they lost a, a weird one to, Tul- to Tulsa. Tulsa's good offense, but this was low scoring. SMU losing puts them at two losses. If they were to beat Cincinnati, they probably would have made beat Cincinnati in the uh, AC, AAC championship. They probably could have made a New Year's Six Bowl, but now with two losses, even if they beat Cincinnati, they are probably taking themselves out of a New Year's Six Bowl. Also, Liberty advances to 8-0, another convincing win for Hugh Freeze's program. And then the other, you know, let's call them mid-majors, uh, team that is important to us is BYU. They were on bye. They will get back this weekend. A great slate of college football coming up. Hopefully we'll get more SEC football games as four of them were canceled last weekend due to uh, COVID. But We will be back next week with a hopefully happy episode about a Hoosiers victory against Ohio State. Let's move on to the NFL, the pros, the wildest game, the wildest finish I remember since that uh, Green Bay-Seattle game a couple years ago, five years ago now, in the Bills-Cardinals game. What a finish. I hate to be a guy that uh, bet the Bills' money line, but... (laughs) <laughs> Holy moly, 32-30 Cardinals final score. Thoughts on Kyler and company? Yeah, um, when you when you watch Kyler start roll out, rolling out to his left to buy time, it looks like he's going to get clipped from – I mean, which he never does. I, so stupid thought, but I mean, because Kyler Murray never gets clipped from behind. But you thought he was going to get uh, taken out from behind, pushed out of bounds, whatever. And then he throws this, like, moon ball that's just like looks first of all, it looks perfect like the way he when he releases it and throws it like it, it looks good so you're like oh that that might have a chance and then all of a sudden you see this these red arms reach out of this crowd of bills defenders and hopkins mosses three dudes to come down with the ball it was it was it was absolutely insane. it was insane. insane it wasn't even bad defense by buffalo to be honest there it, were like you said there were three guys there uh no wide receivers, I don't believe so. And usually some defenses do that just to get someone to jump up high and knock it down. Uh, Bill O'Brien, 
must be rolling in his like rolling in his <laughs> his metaphorical now. grave, yeah, his metaphorical <laughs> grave. Not a head coach anymore. I mean, he he just gave this team the win pretty much. I don't. I mean, I don't want to talk about Houston. Yeah, how can it, you go on if you're a Texans fan? I mean, I guess you you got the guy out of there who made all the mistakes, but that's the only. You kept the him only along way. for too. You kept him around for too long. Yeah, about three weeks too long. Yeah, I gave just, him one too many responsibilities. One insane. being G- general manager. And this, by the way, takes away nothing from how good Buffalo is at seven and three. They are a legit contender in the AFC. I'd be very pleased if I'm a Buffalo fan because. I mean, for 99 times out of 100, you go into Arizona against a good Cardinals team and win that game. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know what the odds of, of yeah, that the play Falcons happening, odds. but they couldn't have been too high. <laughs> no. it, but like like you said, they're they're one perfect play away from being 8-2 and two in complete control of the AFC East. But now, all of a sudden, the AFC East is slowly becoming one of the more competitive divisions in football. Oh, the Miami Dolphins are truly something special, and they had a, a great win against the Chargers uh, this weekend. I'm not great, but 2-0-1 and advanced to 3-0, so that's great. Another game that was good but not, I don't think, as as in as exciting as we thought it would be was the Rams-Seahawks game. Tough weekend for my uh, Seahawks are the best team in the NFL. Russell Wilson for MVP train. But we do know that... The NFC West is the best division in football, and now with three teams at six and three, uh, you know everyone except for the 49ers, the Rams, the Seahawks, and the Cardinals. I'd love to see all these teams in the playoffs. The Seahawks again, defense killed them. Russ having two interceptions and no touchdowns is certainly something we probably won't see again for a while. Well, the thing about that is there's no Chris Carson. Every time Chris Carson doesn't play, Russ is exponentially worse and you see this with turnovers time and time again the past three games if he doesn't have Chris Carson he just turns the ball over back to back to back yeah it, it is I when when Carson first went down and Doug asked if yeah the yeah, offense was, was going to be affected and my first <laughs> initial, said no my initial take was no and then like, he ended up not missing time but the more you watch them play without Carson the more you realized how important he is not just carrying the ball but I mean all the other things in, in, in the game that he does and so yeah, like you said, it, Wilson, like with the way the defense plays right now, Wilson has to be pretty much perfect for them to win games. And if he's not going to even score, then yeah, they're in trouble. But not to take away, I mean, but the like, Goff wasn't great either. Um, I guess the Rams' rushing attack was decent, but I don't know. It wasn't. It wasn't the best game, but it was obviously two really good teams. And, yeah, wildly important game for yeah. the playoff picture, and the Rams' defense is once again very legit. Mm-hmm. So. That's something to look forward to and look into going into the rest of the season. Uh, another another weird one, uh, Patriots-Ravens ending in a, mon- a literal monsoon. Uh, Patriots won 23-17. Uh, the, the group of people that think Raven the Ravens are frauds are, are very happy after this one. But a, a weird game, n- nothing special from Cam Newton, a great— Rushing attack from New England, but this this one, again, was just a, a defensive slugfest. Yeah, especially with the weather in the end. Baltimore and Lamar Jackson, if you're in that position, you can't throw the ball. You saw the last play was dropped anyways. You just got to run if you're Lamar Jackson. You're the top two running quarterback in the league, and you're trying to throw the ball. Just try to go and let guys slip off of you. But besides the point, uh, for Ravens, 
they only had two losses coming into this game. It was Kansas City and it was Pittsburgh, the two best teams in the NFL. So for them to have this drop-down game against really a below-average team in the Patriots, a below-average defense for sure, only score 17 points, that's a big problem. And this is really the first time that Baltimore fans are looking in the mirror saying, we we got some issues on this team. We really can't beat a team like New England. That's trouble. Here's here's the counter for that. One, they're playing in a, a literal monsoon on the road. <laughs> yeah, but it was just England. the last I know, drive that I, really No, but it was it was the whole game, first of all. Second of all, you're playing a highly motivated Patriots team that's coming off a game which they, they believe they could have won. They're getting crushed in the media. They're, you're, they're playing Baltimore. Obviously, they have a target on their back. Belichick draws up a great game plan. They have a receiver throw a touchdown. They run the ball 40 times for 173 yards. Uh, like New England was just dominated the line of scrimmage when they needed to, and Cam Newton didn't turn the ball over. And if 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 New England's going to line up and run the ball forty times for four and a half yards a carry, like what are you going to do? Yeah, well, that's I mean that's certainly a recipe that they're going to have to use because of how ineffective Cam has been this season. And when Cam had to, and and it, they didn't really ask him to throw the ball down the field at all in this game, really. But when he had to make to to complete passes, he was able to to, to complete some short and intermediate throws. We can all agree at this point, though, that the Cam Newton experience and experiment ends after the twenty twenty season. Yes. At ah. least for the Patriots, the Patriots are not re-signing Cam Newton. Barring a miracle, yes. I, I mean, unless they, I don't know what their plan is. Like, who do they, like? Who's their quarterback next year? If they draft somebody young, maybe Cam stays around and mentors. Like, not, everything that that comes out of New England is how much the organization and players love, like love Cam and his presence. And so, it it honestly wouldn't surprise me if he was back with the team. Now, if he was the number one guy next year or the perceived future, I would be surprised. But I wouldn't be I would be surprised if if the Cam Newton experiment completely ended after this. But year. I don't think Cam wants to be a number two guy even in New England. So I feel like that's just going to alter some things too. Hey, I don't know. I don't. I don't personally see Cam as being that big of a, a mentor to somebody. Somebody who might mentor next year nice. probably should retire. Uh, Phil Rivers. <laughs> uh, Colts won a big one uh, in Nashville against the AFC South. I think best team in Tennessee, but both teams are tied atop the top or tied uh, at the top now. Six and three Titans Colts, huge win on the road for Phil Rivers. Three hundred eight yards and a passing touchdown, no interceptions. Crazy. Uh, this is a great game for old Phil. Well, they have the best defense in the division. I don't think that's arguable. Yes, and you could you probably put them up there with the Ravens and the Steelers for the best defense in football yeah. as well. And the good and the good thing for them is that the best quarterback in the division is on the worst team or second worst team. But they're yeah. they're terrible. Deshaun Watson's stuck on Houston. Um so really their only threat is is this Titans team which is a good team but they've shown uh, an inability to to play defense well, at points. And they go as Derrick Henry goes offensively. And, I mean, 100 yards I guess you're going to be happy with, but they just weren't, again, against the best, maybe one of the best defenses in, or the best, let me start over, maybe one of the best defenses in football. Um, so not a lot of uh, not a lot of excuses, but still it was a sloppy game, block punt, a crappy punt, uh, and this one just really got away from the Titans in the uh, third quarter out being outscored 14 to 0. Yeah, unless you're an Indianapolis fan or a Tennessee fan, this was a classic Thursday night. Like <laughs> it's two good teams, they should have played better or not even better, but just like more entertaining, I guess, and it was just kind of a boring game. Yeah, and I mean, if you're Tennessee, Ryan Tannehill 15 for 27, 147 yards and one touchdown isn't going to get it done. 
the Packers survive in Lambeau. Not not a lot of uh, interesting stuff from this game, except uh, fantasy users would have liked to see Aaron Jones be used more. Other than that, this just uh, great teams win close games, and the Packers move on to seven and two. Jaguars continue the tank. They're one and eight. This can't. Like, it, you can't feel good about your team right now if you're Green Bay. I know they're seven and two, but just their defense. Like that's problematic. Yeah, you, you're going to be playing against a good offense and a decent defense in the playoffs. So you're going to have to get some stops. Well, next next week will be a uh, a good test for them against the Indianapolis Colts. Get to go up against a very stellar defense, and then you see what your defense can do against a, a decent offense, especially if they give the ball to Naheem Hines, because Naheem Hines has been a revelation for Indianapolis when he's gotten touches. So, but again, seven and two, we don't apologize for wins. Packers move on. Tua, three and zero oh, as the starter in Miami. Feel really bad for Ryan Fitzpatrick, but. He's uh he's getting a check at the end of the day, so I'm sure he'll be all right. But from what you all have seen from Tua, where's your head at about this uh, former Heisman contender? I mean, I'll say it again as I continue to say, I'm a Tua guy. I have been so high on Tua. Um, I I was excited when the Dolphins like did like just did the right thing and drafted him at five. I was I'm a little like I was a little surprised when they decided to give him the the job this quickly, but. They have a treasure chest of draft picks next year, and they want to see if they this is a guy they can build around. And I, th- I, I, I believed he was, and he's, I think he's starting to show that he really is. And the more he plays, the more reps he gets, the better he's going to look. Like, believe me, that offense is going to open up. They have some guys on the outside who can make plays. You saw when Fitzpatrick was the quarterback. Um, to like, they'll take the training wheels off at some point. This kid's good. And the thing is, their next three games against the dynamite Broncos, Jets, and Bengals. So for him to go 3-0 and now has a very, very good shot to go 6-0, that's a hell of a start. And like you were talking about Fitzpatrick, he was great, but I think he gets some resolution of just saying, all right, well, I get I was benched, but for Tua to come in and really put on a show like this, you just got to be happy for the guy. Yeah, and I think Ryan's, Ryan Fitzpatrick is that person. Uh, on the other side, Justin Herbert and the Chargers, 2-7. and seven. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, like we said, they've got a fire head coach. Um Justin Herbert is great, needs weapons, and they need to entirely revamp that defense. So he has weapons. He has weapons. The defense is the problem, and they're they're completely different when when Bosa doesn't play, and, and their second Derwin James isn't playing this year. Um, the secondary is in shambles, but uh, they need a little bit of help on the offensive line. But I mean, they have Keenan Allen, they have Mike Williams. They have yeah, Hunter but the game's Henry. different when Eckler's in the game. Well, obviously, He's yeah, out. Eckler's hurt too. Yeah, but and that, Bellage is fine, and Justin Jackson and Just, they're, Joshua they're, Kelly. I would I would say that obviously the problem with the team is on the defensive yes, side of the ball. Yes, they need a a complete just tear it all down and start over on the defensive side of the ball, or at least get some of your guys back. They need some guys back and they need some help in the secondary. Yeah, Raiders, Broncos, Broncos are another one that is just like yikes. Uh, but the Raiders six and three. Let's talk about the winners first. Derek Carr didn't lose them the game. They ran the ball incredibly well between Booker and Jacobs, over two hundred yards on the ground. They've got guys that can catch the ball, very talented between Darren Waller, Henry Ruggs, Hunter Renfro, Josh Jacobs even is a good pass catcher. So where do we see this Raiders team? They're not going to win the AFC, what are they, AFC West, West yeah. um, because the Chiefs are in that division. But they they are certainly in the, in the hunt for a, a playoff spot. Well, I think I 
I may have been a little off on this on this Raiders team. I think they're a little better than I was giving them credit for last week. Um, like obviously this Denver team isn't anything super special, but you've seen them be able to hang around in games and come back in games and to to stomp on them like this was. It, like it wasn't a shocking win, but it was. It's an impressive win for a Vegas team that I didn't think was going to be either this good or this consistent. Yeah, they're going to make the playoffs for sure unless something really goes south for this team. I don't know if they'll be able to win yet, but I think they definitely have a foundation for future seasons more so than just this season. Yeah, I mean, if De- if Derek Carr's not going to turn the ball over and they're going to run the ball forty times for two hundred yards. Probably pretty good. Yeah. You got a good chance. Yeah. Next week will be a very good litmus test for them. Uh, even though they, they beat the Chiefs earlier this season, they play the Chiefs again next Sunday night on, on prime time. So tune in for some Collinsworth and Al Michaels. Uh just quickly, Steelers nine and oh. A win's a win. Hand Joe Burrow. Business. Yeah, I mean, they just shut down Joe Burrow and that Bengals offense, and we knew the Bengals defense wasn't gonna be able to stop Big Ben. Big Ben fresh off the COVID list, three hundred and thirty-three yards, four touchdowns. No interceptions, no turnovers. He really spread the ball well to a bunch of receivers. I mean, he's got so many talented weapons offensively. So they it just give you doesn't a little matter. juice when you go on the COVID list. Yeah, I guess get, like, so. A free pass? I, yeah, Big Ben looked as healthy as he has <laughs> in years. Uh, but yeah, uh, like we said, Steelers nine and zero. They've played one of the easier, if not the easiest, schedules in football. They got the Jaguars next week, so they should advance to ten and zero. But uh, another game against the Ravens, and then later in the season they've got the Bills and the Colts. So that'll be uh, that'll be uh, good for the Steelers to get some good wins. But I think worst case scenario this season they're they're looking at thirteen and three, and that's like very worst case scenario. And the thing is they did lose or didn't lose, but they almost lost to Dallas last week. So it was a nice bounce back game to dominate. A Bengals team that's really hung in a lot of games. Yeah, yeah I, I would. I was calling this a trap game for Pittsburgh. I, I like Burrow in, in, the, in Cincinnati offense being able to put up points this week. Um, but yeah, Pittsburgh's defense came to play. Like Doug said, um, after last week's performance against Dallas, I was starting to see a little smoke. But no fires here. Nope. My Pittsburgh Steelers nine and zero. New Orleans wins, needed that one, uh, coming off a huge win against Tampa Bay, and Tampa Bay really bounced back too, we'll get to that. But uh, the real story here is Drew Brees, I believe I saw on SportsCenter, it's a fractured rib and a It's uh, a couple different things. Collapsed like a, lung there was is a what rib, I just saw. Maybe a shoulder or something, I don't know. It was and like a plethora of injuries. Not that they needed him to do anything special, but Jameis was not good. Uh, going six for ten for sixty three yards. They they just really ran the ball uh, with uh, Kamara and um, Latavius Murray the entire second half and just kind of bled out that 49ers defense. But a game New Orleans needed to win against an inferior opponent. If you're a Saints fan, you hope Drew Brees gets healthy. I don't think he's going to be playing next week. Um, against the Falcons, actually, so anything is possible. (laughs) Uh, But if you're a Saints fan, can you have the success you've had this season with Jameis Winston? It's going to look way different. The offense is going to look different because what Drew Brees does so well is look at a defense, figure out what they're trying to do to stop him, and then just expose that hole. And it it doesn't even matter that he doesn't push the ball down the field because he just knows where the open areas are going to be no matter how small. And he's extremely accurate and gets the ball in there. With Winston, uh, if they're not going to just run the ball a bunch of times, they're probably going to have to force the ball down the field, um, make some more tough throws, more 50-50 balls. It might be a more fun Saints offense, but it also might be one that takes more risks. Um, I don't know what we're going to see in the next – I don't know how long Breeze is going to be out, but how how they work in Taysom Hill will be interesting. 
But I think you'll probably see a more run-heavy attack, lean on Kamara, and uh, the ball will go down the field a little bit more too. Absolutely. And the defense will be tested more because Drew Brees makes it easier for the defense. He controls the ball a lot more than Jameis Winston does. Turnover is plus, just time of possession. So you saw the defense against the Buccaneers a week ago, three points against a very good offense, 13 points allowed against 49ers. They've been good this season, so now they're just going to be tested even more with a quarterback like Jameis. And next week against a dynamic Falcons offense, who, according to NBC, is in the hunt for a playoff (laughs) spot. Uh, Buccaneers, huge bounce-back win for them after only scoring three points last week. 46-23 against the Panthers, and I'll get to the Panthers because I do want to mention a little something about them. But Tom Brady, 341 yards, three touchdowns, no turnovers. Ronald Jones, that incredible 98-yard touchdown run. My guy. (laughs) This game, after the, you know, halfway point of the, the, or after, excuse me, after halftime, this game wasn't close because it was tied going into half. Um, but the the Buccaneers came out to play in the second half. Very encouraging if you're a Bucks fan. Tom Brady obviously still has it. Last week was obviously an, a fluke for the Bucks, but this defense is still good against a good Panthers defense or offense. Excuse me. This is a this is good to see if you're a Bucks fan or a, a Bucks owner. Yeah, I mean, as bad as they looked last week, that's as good as they looked this week offensively. While nothing was clicking last week, everything was clicking this week. They couldn't do anything wrong. Brady, you already mentioned his stats, had another monster week. Um, it's The only thing that can upset you about this Bucks team right now is the inconsistency. But the, if you look at the teams they've lost to, it's the Saints twice and the Bears. So, um, I don't know. They're still a good team. They're not They're not the best team in the, in the NFC, but they can beat anybody on any given day. And so... Um, you're trending in the, trending in a good direction if you're Tampa. Yeah, they can beat any team like you said in the NFL, so that could be a big benefit come playoff time. If they got a little bit of a streak, they can win the Super Bowl, but they could also lose in the first round too. Yeah, I said uh, the Steelers have the best weapons in pro football. I, I could be wrong. It could be the the, it is the, the Patriots. It's, it's probably the Buccaneers. It has to be. Um, with all the guys they've got down there. But uh, no, a good good win for Bucks. Panthers, I did want to talk about them. Teddy Bridgewater got injured. I don't know if he's going to be out this week, but uh, hopefully he is good. I, I am infatuated with Matt Rule and Joe Brady and this Panthers offense. The weapons they have, Christian McCaffrey has played uh, like two games this whole season. So for them to be, or for them to show the offensive capabilities they have this season without Christian McCaffrey is a direct reflection of Matt Rule and Joe Brady. So I think if you're a Panthers fan, you got to be very excited about the future. Obviously, I don't know if Bridgewater's your guy, but if he is, you got to be excited about that. Obviously, McCaffrey's your franchise. And you got guys like Robbie Anderson, DJ Moore, and Curtis Samuel who are excellent pass catchers. The future is bright in Charlotte. So. Keep your head up, Panthers fans. Bring Joe Brady to Chicago, please. Yeah, well, he's going to be fighting for that Falcons job, too. Uh, (laughs) Brady with enemy. But let's talk about Chicago. Tonight, by the time you listen to this podcast, we will already know what happened in this game. Which will be the Bears one. But a uh, Vikings-Bears, Monday Night Football, NFC North. It's just good stuff. Good stuff. Yuck, yuck. I want to – I mean, as – I like this game terrifies me for so many different reasons. <laughs> the Bears, you can the only thing you can bet with the Bears is the under, and we're but they're playing Kirk Cousins in prime time. Oh, and so, nine against the spread. I got. I mean, good God. <laughs> well, here's the thing: the Bears have been playing horrible. The Vikings won their last two, so I feel like you think the Vikings win, and every time you think a team wins, the opposite happens. So I think the Bears win. 
I mean, if if Dalvin Cook's going to play like he's a fourth grader on the field with kindergartners, then um, the Bears will obviously be in trouble. But if it's close and the game falls on Captain Kirk's shoulders, then you have to be feeling pretty good in Chicago. Look, uh, for me, this comes down to the Vikings' defense. The last two weeks in their in their short little two game win streak, they've held the Lions and Packers to forty two combined points, and those two offenses are light years more dynamic than this Bears offense. So if they can hold those teams to 42 combined points, Chicago is in trouble considering how terrible their offense has been this season. That's what I'm looking at. If the Vikings defense that gave up 40 points to Atlanta shows up, you got this in the bag. (laughs) Some predictions to see if we're right or wrong come tomorrow morning. Doug, why don't you go first? This is your game. I'll take the Bears by four points. Cut. Yeah, I like the Bears by field goal. I uh, noted Bears hater. I uh, I do think Chicago is going to win this game. I think, wow. I think a, oh a field God. goal is probably the uh, – it's still Kirk Cousins on primetime. I mean, I'm not an idiot. You, I mean, we're going <laughs> to – it is Kirk Cousins on primetime. We're going to tweet out tomorrow and be like, hey, we nailed it. Or, yikes. We were way off. Yeah, the skip, skip, the last, skip the last part of the podcast. <laughs> this is becoming – it is an important game for the Bears. It would get them to 6-4 and four because yeah. if you lose this game, you go 5-5 five and five and then you got to match up against Green Bay next week. Right. Uh, or two weeks. The Bears are on bye next week. Um, but match up against Green Bay with the potential fall to 5-6, and six, you, you lose yourself pretty quick there. Uh, let's transition to something near and dear to my heart, the 2020 Masters. Augusta, Georgia, great win for Dustin Johnson. I think a uh, inevitability in most people's eyes that Dustin would eventually wear the green jacket, and uh, he dominated the best performance ever at Augusta, 20 under, breaking Tigers and Jordan Spieth's record of 18 under. Just Dustin shot a 268, Tiger and Jordan both with 270. A very great tournament. Um, I don't have bad things to say about it. We're going to get uh, – I, I want to talk about April versus November because the Masters usually played in the spring and the weather and the differences in the grass and how the course played. But just from y'all's thoughts, I, I want to get to how you felt about this Masters. I mean, it was it was a little odd like that it was you know coming during football and obviously in the fall and things like that. But once the coverage got going and you heard the voices and you saw Augusta and the course and the way it looked, and it's just like it was it was really nice. You like forgot that we didn't get the Masters this year. Yeah. And so it was really nice to have the Masters. I thought the Thursday and Friday were like normal spring Masters. I think the storylines of Tiger being up there and Dustin Johnson, Justin Thomas, these big names towards the top was awesome. But I do agree with you. Saturday, Sunday felt a little bit – in the back seat, I would say. And, of course, if you're a big golf fan, you might disagree. But for the average sports fan, (laughs) if you're watching college football and NFL Saturday, Sunday, the Masters takes a little bit of a back seat, which is unfortunate because it's the best golf tournament of the year. So I get what you said where Thursday and Friday felt normal because it took center stage. But if you are a golf fan and a Masters fan, Thursday and Friday were not normal because conditions were completely different than they normally are. It rained a lot on Thursday in Augusta and earlier in the week, so the course was playing incredibly soft, and the grass is already softer as it is in November. they got a Bermuda grass in Augusta, which naturally lends itself to be softer in cold weather seasons. This, we saw on Thursday, 
like guys like Paul Casey get to seven under on Thursday, how how quickly guys were getting out of the gate. We don't usually see that. People were attacking pins and the ball was sticking uh, within within inches and feet of the pin. And we don't see that Augusta. Usually you don't get a a a ball to just drop on the green. It's usually much more meticulous than that. Yeah, I feel like Augusta is known for like its long rolling shots and like mm-hmm. these putts that just like seemingly come from out of nowhere and all these crazy angles and that just wasn't really a part of this weekend at all. Yes. Uh I, I either it, that being said though, people were very critical about all that. We got to have the Masters this year and that's right. certainly a gift. Uh the next one's in 144 days. I'm very excited. But uh, we we do need to talk about Dustin Johnson because he won the FedEx Cup. He won PGA Tour Player of the Year. He got his second major and his first Masters. He's going to be the favorite to win the Masters next in April. It's in next year. It is next year, but it's a very quick turnaround. Dustin Johnson's the hottest player in golf right now, and he could go on a run like we've seen Spieth go on recently, and Brooks Kepka has gone on, and obviously guys like Tiger and Jack. But this was uh, you. You look at the final leaderboard. Uh, besides Sung JM, 22 years old, he's going to be something one day. The uh, first Asian player to win a major, probably since Ye Yang, he will probably become that eventually. But Justin Thomas in the top ten, Roy McIlroy in the top ten, Kepka in the top ten, Rom, Webb Simpson, guys you know, Patrick Reed. This was a great leaderboard if you are a golf purist. I was ecstatic, and I'm uh, my blood will be pumping till next April. And Cameron Smith. Doug. Yeah, first player ever in the Masters to go four straight under 70 rounds. Yeah, very exciting. And he didn't even win the Masters. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That kind of just tells you how this went. Cameron Smith is a guy that's that's poised for big things, too. And I do want to shout out my guy, Rory, who I, I love and I've been a fan of for a while. If he didn't have as bad of a Thursday as he had, he shot 75 plus three. He was 14 under the rest of the the. the Friday through Sunday. So he had a he could have put himself in contention there to win his first major in six years. So hopefully he's back. Another storyline obviously was Bryson DeChambeau <laughs> saying that the Augusta should be a par sixty seven and then barely making the cut. Like, yeah, he said he got sick too after. Yeah. Like, come on, dude. Just if you don't play well, don't even if you are sick, you don't bring that up. Yeah. Bryson was the favorite heading into this one after his domination at wing foot. But golf was back. Now it's gone again till April. Jim Nance was fantastic, and I've got a little something else about uh, why I love sports this week having to do with the Masters, so I'll get to that. But uh, let's get to our segments. Or do we want to? Is there anything you had to say about UFC either from last week or the incoming weeks? Uh, my Saturday was hazy. I'll say that. Um, but good for. I mean. Awesome for Paul Felder stepping up on short notice and competing with a guy like RDA, which is um, absolutely impressive. Uh, the next few weeks in the UFC are going to be pretty big, so uh, keep an eye on the calendar. We will certainly keep an eye on the calendar. Doug, let's start with you. Good week, bad week. Good week. I might be taking your while of sports this week. I'm not sure. Okay. Good week for Andy Ogletree. He is the amateur that was the best amateur in the Masters this year. Shot a two-under from Georgia Tech. For him, though, it wasn't just about playing good golf. He played with the legend and one of his role models. The first two rounds was matched up with him, and then the third round was also matched up with Tiger Woods. And then if since you are the top amateur in the tournament, that means you're in the cabin for the Green Jacket ceremony. So he was sitting right next to Jim Nance, Tiger Woods, and Dustin Johnson for that. So as, what, probably like a 22-year-old or something? Yeah, that is that just is, out of college. Yeah, that's a special moment for him. 
Uh, bad week for me, well, for the Houston Rockets specifically. The NBA, of course, coming back very, very soon. The Rockets are in a heap of trouble. Russell Westbrook wants out. James Harden wants out. Both two different locations. I heard Harden is looking towards Brooklyn. I, don't, I want to hear your guys' thoughts on potentially that being a scenario for him. I mean, I I would love to see what happens when you put Kyrie and James Harden on a team and just shake it up. And Kevin Durant. Disaster. Go ahead. Like, yeah. The personalities in that locker room, while they yeah, might like each other, we'll see how, how it uh, turns, turns out on the court. But, I mean, obviously, if Harden ends up on the Nets, and I know the Nets, I think we're also looking at uh, Serge Ibaka. I don't know how all this stuff is going to end up working out, but... It's I mean, NBA free agency for you. It's a good team, man. It's a good team. If I can jump in real quick and do bad radio, something you're already going to know when you listen to this. We are in the lovely media school, and I'm watching Adam Schefter on the TV. It is broken ribs on both sides for Drew Brees and a collapsed lung. So I cannot imagine that he is going to be suiting up next week. No, probably not. Um, but yes, it's going to be a hellstorm if if Westbrook goes, or excuse me, if Harden goes to the Nets. I cannot imagine that ends well for anybody. The talent <laughs> is unbelievable, but uh, I just can't imagine that locker room flows. But I'm not the decision maker. Uh, was did you do your bad week? Yeah, I just did. Okay, keys. All right, cool. I'll start in a little reverse order. I'll go bad week too, and I'll piggyback off you, and we we can just expand it to the city of Houston because um, the Texans come out and look absolutely awful. You got to feel terrible for Deshaun Watson and everything that he's been trying to do um, down in Houston, and then you have to fast forward to the late game and you watch DeAndre Hopkins do yeah. what he did, and you just have to be reminded and bashed over the head for the next 24 to 48 hours that your former head coach, general manager, traded that guy for a bag of bricks. Um, so tough tough week for the city of Houston. Uh, my good week, uh, phenomenal week for whoever's releasing media, um, like creating those videos for IU football or Indiana yeah. football on Twitter. Oh, my God. Like those video, like every time I watch a, a video put out by Indiana football, I want to run through a wall. So shout out to the media department. Um, they're doing a kick-ass job. And the Tom Allen graphic on uh, on the game on Sunday, the celebration injuries, that was, <laughs> that was all time. That was awesome. Um, my good week, it is Masters. I have a couple Masters-themed ones in here. But uh, Bernard Longer, 63-year-old former Masters champion, 85 and 93. Uh, probably one of the fittest 63-year-olds you'll ever meet. He shot three under this week and was very stellar throughout the whole round, finished better than Bryson DeChambeau, if you were wondering. And this is a guy who hits his three would like 200 yards at this point. So congratulations to Bernard Longer. A great week. Uh, I, I talked about, if you're interested in getting more Masters coverage, check out my episode of the toss-up that I did last week. Uh, we went in-depth, but... This reminded me a lot of uh, 2009 when Tom Watson finished second at the British Open to uh, Stuart Sink, although Bernard Longer did not finish second. He finished tied for 29th, but a good week for the 63-year-old German. And then bad week, I'll steal something from the man Scott Van Pelt. Bad beat if you are a gambler. Bill's money line, absolutely brutal. And really, even worse if you bet Cardinals minus two and a half yeah. because the Cardinals took a knee on the extra point play instead of kicking it or going for two to not risk turning that ball over. So just a couple bad beats for the gamblers. Transition right into why I love sports this week. NBA free agency is one of my favorite periods in sports. Um not just free agency periods, literally it, it's better than some sports in my opinion because of all the drama on Twitter between Shams and Woj and that crap. But uh, also the draft is on Wednesday. 
two of us, Doug and I, have very high draft picks, so future is bright in those two cities. Keys, we're interested always to see what the Celtics are going to do. Also, while we're on the free agency note, Drew Smiley just signed a one-year deal with the Atlanta Braves. So uh, Alex Anthopoulos back at work trying to get more starting pitching for the Braves. So we'll see how that ends up. We also we have uh, baseball free agency uh, in the mix always. And then my my whatever it is, fifth why I love sports this week is Vern Lundquist, who is completely retired except for the four days a year when he calls the Masters. Uh, he was out of his house at Steamboat Springs. He drove, came all the way down to Augusta, probably flew, not drove. But uh, it was nice to hear Vern, who turned 80 this year and was such a big part of my childhood with watching the uh, SEC on CBS and calling March Madness and obviously doing golf tournaments. But you know when you tune into the 16th hole, you're going to hear Vern's voice calling that par three, and it's very nice to hear him still do it. So that's why I love sports this week. Keys, go ahead. Yeah, I got a couple of them, so I'm glad I had a couple because you took one of mine. I absolutely love NBA free agency in the draft, which started this morning. Um, so you know things are going to be going crazy from here on out. You also mentioned the ba- um, baseball free agency is kind of picked up. The Mets sold. Um, so Steve Cohen, the new owner of the Mets, I texted all of my Mets friends and congratulated them. Um, they're doing great things. And then just to ba- piggyback off of the theme of Augusta and the Masters for this weekend, um, uh, as everybody knows, Augusta has uh, the first tee shot ceremony with Jack Nicholas and Gary Player. Next year, they add Lee Elder, the first black man to compete in the Masters. Um, so he'll join the two of them on the tee box next year. So good for Augusta National for that. For me, I'm going to bring up IU basketball because that is coming up very, very soon. This Wednesday, 8 p.m. on Facebook Live <laughs> will be Hoosier Hysteria. Can't miss. <laughs> no uh, no fans last year. I remember last year I did go. It was awesome. I actually had pretty good seats, and the fire alarm went off because of some theatrics with the smoke detectors and everything. So we'll see if that happens without any fans this year. But just the fact that college basketball, I forget, obviously the full schedule isn't out for – either the men's team or the women's team yet, but it should be coming out soon. In the next, like, 10, 12 days, I'm guessing, the season's going to start for IU. And we would be remiss to not mention that announced today that they're looking at a college basketball bubble in Indianapolis for March Madness. I mean, think about all the places you could play. You could play at Hinkle. You can play at... Uh, the cold stadium. You can well, play and the indie seven. kids are absolutely losing their mind at the the high school gyms yeah. that they could play. In. <laughs> it's been a wild day on Twitter if you're from Indianapolis. It's, but yes, very exciting because realistically, they would probably play a couple games in Bloomington, given it's only an hour away and there's there's not enough stadiums to play unless you go back to back to back to back to back. So and you should on the the high school stadiums. They're one the biggest in the country, but yeah. two, I mean, you're also not going to have many fans there, so right. it really won't matter. They it need could a place happen. to stay. It could happen. Um, All right. Well, this is our last episode in studio for a while, probably until January or February. But we will be on Zoom, maybe on that other thing we might try. Yes, there's some Um, things in the works. So some things in the works. And uh, we'll see you guys next week at some point. But uh, that'll do it for today. Be sure to tune in next week for another Sideline Report. Bear down. Went out the corner of my eye I saw a pretty little thing approaching me She said, I never seen a man who looks so